Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire. It's a feeling of expectation and desire, a wish, if you will, for a certain thing to happen, for a certain wish to come true, for the certain, or for the rather the hopeful realization of an ambition or goal to occur. That's what Webster says about it. But in ancient traditions of the church, when we talk about hope, we talk about something different from a hope. We talk about something different from a feeling. We talk about something that is a certainty in our minds and in our hearts. We're talking about something that is the anchor of the soul, something that we might call the very one thing that we trust in, the one thing that we rely upon. So when we talk about hope, in the context of the Christian church, we are talking about something a lot more important than we hope that it doesn't rain on the day of our big event with the family. We're talking about something even more important than anything else that might be confronting us in our life. We're talking about the very substance of what life is about. We're talking about having the opportunity to take hold of someone rather than something who can make life more beautiful, more meaningful, can make life for an eternity. So when we talk about hope, it's a big, big thing. And when we talk about hope, we also just naturally fall into the idea of talking about confidence because the certainty of hope in the Scripture ties in with our understanding of the word confidence, a belief that one can rely on someone or something in the beginning. There's a state of feeling certain about the truth of something, so convinced by it that nothing could shake us from that reality. Now, when you go back to what childhood is supposed to be, back for, be about for children, one of the things that every child has the right, if you will, and should have the opportunity if at all possible, to know that hope is grounded in the relationship that they learn from their parents. Children hope that their parents are going to come home from work or come home from wherever they are to the preschool to pick them up with the certainty that it's going to happen. Now. I say that because in one of the churches that had the largest preschool I've ever been around, they had the wisdom to put the pastor's office right next door to the baby nursery. Yeah, it was really bad. They would bring in those children, and first of all, there were all these adorable, loving children, but they were coming, many of them, two days a week, which is, by the way, a terrible idea. You say, what do you mean? It is terrible. Because you know what happens between Tuesday and Thursday in a child's life when they go to preschool in the beginning years? They forget that they went on Thursday by next Tuesday. So you do what you did last Tuesday all over again. And undoubtedly, when you have a lot of children together, that means you have Mr. and Mrs. and sometimes buku of Mr. and Mrs. Screamers. You know, they're the ones that are certain mama is not coming back. 
And what is she doing? I can't say it with my mouth, but in my little bitty head, I know I've been left at this strange building with all these strange people. And not only that, but I'm in this room with all, other, all kinds of other little strange creatures. You know that has to be going on in a baby's head, right? We should make a movie about that, what's going on in a baby's head. Yeah, it's already been done, right? Okay. But the reality is when you're sitting there and you're the new pastor of a new church, you're not really ready for 450 of them to come spread in over a day. And so I finally gave up when one child was just screaming his head off. And nobody was able to hush that kid up. Well, I obviously wasn't going to get any work done because that wall was not that thick. It was not that well built. So I just got up. I went next door and said, where's that screaming child? Well, it wasn't far to find him when you got to the door. There he is. And I said, let me have him. And she kind of looked at me and said, what are you doing? Let me have the baby. So I took the baby. And I took the baby out, and I just held on to the baby and walked all over the church building with the baby until the baby felt like, I don't know who this big ugly guy is, but he's warm and he's fuzzy and he's round, and he feels warm. It'll be okay. Then when he quit crying, I went down and put him back in, but by then another one had started up, and I realized I was in trouble. <laughs> you know what I really remember about the fear of being left? I remember... When one day I was supposed to pick Sarah up from school, I'm trying to remember. I don't think she was the only then, but uh, her sister was very young. It was my task to pick Sarah up. Now, I didn't usually pick Sarah up. Sally always did that, but for some reason, Sally couldn't do it. Well, unfortunately, dads are not perfect. And I forgot. And time came when finally I remembered that I had forgot. I said, oh, my goodness, I forgot to go get Sarah. So I went and I jumped in the car and I got there. And I didn't have to go get her from the front door because she was sitting all by herself at that front porch steps of that school waiting for the guy to show up. Now, she was sitting there because I think she believed I was going to come. But I kind of hated to get there at that point late. Because she got up, I didn't even get out of the car, and she started walking toward me with her head down and with that look on her face. And by the time she got to me, I felt about this tall. I couldn't reach the pedal to make the car move. I had shrunk up so much. And she opened the door, and she climbed in, and she kind of slammed the door, and she looked up, and she said, you forgot me. I kind of did. But not forever. I would never forget you forever. I'm sorry. I'll never, it'll never happen again. I don't think it did. I was punished enough at that point not to ever forget that. You get so busy, you know, you just forgot. But you know what? The wonderful thing about being forgotten by a person is it reminds us that we are never forgotten of by God. One of the things we hope for and long for is that person to love us and fill us with certainty and confidence that their love is always there. I hope for a world in which when parents get married, they can stay married. So that when they have children, they can all stay together. Because I know that in my little mind, life was so simple and I was so spoiled because daddy always came home from work. Mom always knew where daddy was and mother was always there at home. It was a simple existence in a land that we know little about today. 
I never really thought about divorce. I never really worried about being alone. I never really worried about not having one of my parents there. And I know that deep down inside me, a lot of who I am has to do with that confidence of mother and dad's love, the constancy of it, that made me what little I am today. I think it's so hard for people to relate to God when they haven't known that. Because today in the world in which we live, people are hoping to understand who God is. They're searching for something that would cause them to believe in God, and they've not had the example of the constant reality of a godlike figure in their parents oftentimes to bring them into that realization that God is like mother and daddy except only better without fault. It's so hard for adults to grasp that when they've not been taught and experienced what it means to be loved by parents, both continually and without cause. Now, I'm not saying this to put a guilt trip on anybody who's been in a marriage where it, it had to end. I'm aware of many reasons why marriages end. I'm also aware that at the side of those marriages, when it can't even be helped, that there are children who have to be paid special attention to. And I believe that parents, for the most part, do their very best to do just that. And I think that they oftentimes overcome what is an, has become an obstacle that would not have been there perhaps in a better situation. I'm also aware that there are parents, as hard as it is for me to understand, as for you to understand, who don't love their children in the way that children need to be loved. And sometimes they love them in ways that harm children. It's beside my head to grasp it. It's beside yours probably as well. And yet we hope for a world in which that never happens, knowing that that world is out there. When you hear the children talk about the things they hope for in the world, and they talk about every children have a home, and they're talking about that everyone be righteous, that everyone would be raised in a righteous understanding, knowing that God loves them and that they love God. That is the right relationship that Scripture is talking about. So when I talk about the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3, 15, these are words that have stuck to me often and have been important in my formation. Because in, in those words of Peter, he says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready to give an accounting for the hope that is in you. We have to be ready to tell people why, as a Christian, we're hopeful. We have to be ready to explain to people what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. And as I've been thinking about this passage all week, kind of struggling with it, it seems so simple and yet it seems so deep. And when I started making a list of all the things I was thankful for, man, the list just got so large, I thought, well, that'll never work. But as you think about it, it really kind of my life boils down into two large understandings. One is that it, my life boils down into the, the concept of salvation that I hope and long for and the concept of inheritance, what I received because I'm a part of the kingdom of God. And when I start thinking about all the things that I hope and desire for, 
this knowledge that we just read about it, Nick read about it from the book of Romans, where we would know that we can never be separated from the love of God. That knowledge and that understanding comes apart as the assurance of the gospel once it's been accepted in our hearts and we've been taught it, it begins to sink in. But it really takes a long time. You know, I, I remember preaching many funerals along the way. That's something that goes with the task of being a pastor. And I thought I understood death pretty well. I, I'd taken all the classes I really was into, into taking care of those that were in need because that was, that's a huge thing in small towns where I began my ministry. But you know what? I really, even though I lost an uncle and I lost grandparents and they were very close to me, I was young when I lost them. And I, I don't know, I didn't finish the work. I didn't finish the work that went with that grieving process. It wasn't really until my father died. In 1995, after all those years in the church, after all those funerals that I presided over, that every funeral thereafter became different for me. Because then I began to truly understand that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ. It became foundational point for me in my understanding and theology of salvation that salvation was about more than just going to heaven although that certainly is a large part but it's about more than just salvation at a later time it's about salvation that begins here on earth we, we, we talk about salvation in so many different ways but we hope and yearn for the salvation of ourselves and for all humankind you say well I'm already saved preacher but you're not done yet we need an understanding of salvation that is truly biblical because the saving hand of God is not done simply in the legalistic sense as some theologies leave it it is much more relational than it is jurisprudence in its content in the scriptures that's why it's called righteousness being righteousness is not as some misunderstood it for many years simply a matter of keeping the law but rather is a matter of being in the right relationship to the one who makes the law. It is only when our spirits become one with God, it is only when we submit ourselves, as we just sang about in the song, that that oneness with God becomes a reality. And search though we might for the answers to life's problems in all of the right places, and as strong as we are and as intelligent as we've become in these centuries of living in youthful evolution, you humanity's evolution we have not yet found anything that is more key to human existence than a relationship with God it is that very center of community and civilization to my knowledge there has to this point in day never been a group of people uncovered from the darkest corners of the earth who were not worshiping something they had a religion as the foundation of their hope they had a, a power greater than themselves. It didn't mean that they understood it as we understand Jesus and Christianity, but they had something that was larger than themselves to hold to. And the Christian faith, we call that, that faith in Jesus Christ, the substance of our self salvation. In fact, our identity are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who we are. Our lives are wrapped up through faith in Jesus Christ 
in Christ. And Paul's uses of the word in Christ are incredible in the New Testament. As you go through them over and over again, he's talking about this intimate, personal relationship that we live in Christ and through Christ. And Christ lives in us and through us. All that we are and all that we hope to become is tied up in that relationship. And salvation is not simply something that happens and it's over. It's not simply what Carol did today or what you did many years ago. It's not something simply that that you learn a little bit about and then it stops. But salvation is an ongoing process that happens in your heart every day in every life. And you say, how can you prove that? Write me a diary of yesterday for you, please. And I will prove to you that you needed saving yesterday. Despite the fact that you had been a human, if you will empty the contents of your heart and your mind, I probably would have not much problem finding a place where you were less than where Christ wanted you to be or less than who Christ wanted you to be. Because, you see, we're human. We have inherited this sinful nature, and God is constantly trying to purge us of it. You remember how your parents purged you of things you shouldn't do, right? Listen, I've been married 44 years. My wife is still purging me. And she does it constantly. It's that teacher. I call it the teacher germ. You know, it gets inside teachers, and they teach too long. You know, that everything's a teaching moment. And and you're, you're laughing because you're not a teacher, and you live with one, right? Because you know what that means. And what that means is, you know, it's constant. You ever watch a grandmother while her children are eating and everything they're doing, they're doing with them and kind of correcting it. And they're, they're also slapping them upside the head emotionally, not physically. They're just saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Nip, 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 nip. At least that's the way my teacher and wife is. Now, I know all you teachers aren't that way, so let me apologize to you as a group. But Sally gets a little carried away with teaching. She's a particular kind of person. And that's why I picked up the kitchen today before she gets home this afternoon. <laughs> I'm trained. I'm well trained. Think about that in terms of your soul. Think about that in terms of how God is training us throughout our lives. Because, you know, quite frankly, I learn better now than I learned 30 years ago. Quite frankly, I'm studying a different list of courses now. And isn't it that way with all of us? There are some things I couldn't understand as a 33-year-old father. There are some things I couldn't understand as a 40-year-old father. There are some things I couldn't understand as a 50-year-old father that I can much better understand today. Because you see, that ability to learn is progressive in its nature with our experience in life. You know, it's only as we grow older that we learn to say goodbye to those we love. We don't, it's not very easy. I remember the first funeral I went to as a young boy. It was my Uncle Sam, who actually was my great uncle. The first person I knew who passed away. It was, I didn't know what to hope for. I, I kind of understood heaven at that point in my life, but not much more. And I didn't know what to do about what I felt inside me. That would come later as years progressed. And I got more comfortable, if you will, with death. And I learned that death was an enemy that had been defeated. Because my hope is not in death, but rather in life. Now, that 
that hope that's within me is so strong that it pushes me toward, toward those who do not have that hope, who are wandering around without the certainty and the assurance and the confidence that God loves them so much that he will never leave them, even in death. I see it in people's eyes when they're getting ready to make that, that movement from one place to the another, from one reality we call earth to another we call eternity. You see it in their eyes. And I've become in the recent years to starting to tell people when that time comes, I said, don't be afraid. I know you're not. Look for it. Lean into it. What you're about to experience, you're only going to experience once. You're going to see the face of Christ coming for you. Open up yourself so that that transition moment, that blink of an eye from here to there, is something that is so wholly intimate between you and the Father that you've been yearning toward for all these years. And now it's time. Relax. Enjoy the greatest trip you'll ever take. It's kind of like I tell parents, not parents, young adults when they're getting ready to get married. You say, what? How did you make that jump? You know what happens when people are getting ready to get married? They get weird, um, especially young women. You know, their stress factor goes up multiples. You know, they want everything to be perfect. They want everything just right. And they're worried that somebody forgot to do something. And they come to my office if I'm the one doing the wedding, and you can just see it all over their face. They're just so worried with getting all the details done. And, you know, if we get down close to the wedding, I give them some advice. Okay, it's time to do the wedding. Here's my advice. What's that? Relax. Enjoy this. You're intending to just do this once, right? Then enjoy it. Don't worry about all the preparation. Don't worry about all the stuff. Enjoy this moment of giving your heart to someone else who's giving their heart to you. Let me worry about the details. I'll fix whatever breaks. And guess what? You'll never remember it anyway. Just forget it. Relax and enjoy it. Don't be like the mother in one of the early weddings I did. She was a pain, that woman was. The woman who wore, the ones who worry more than the brides are the bride's mothers, oftentimes. Not all the time, but oftentimes. One particular mother that the senior pastor gave me to do this wedding. He said, you're going to do this wedding for this family. I said, I am. I said, he said, yes. I said, why? I was a new associate. I hardly knew the people. Why didn't he do the wedding? He'd been there several years. He says, oh, it'll be good for you. I found out what that meant. So I did that wedding. I've never had so much pain in my life. I'd only done two or three weddings probably at that time in a little small town. But this one had to be perfect. And I knew it. She knew that it had to be perfect. And she drove me insane with it had to be perfect to a person who didn't believe it had to be perfect anyway. It was really a bad thing. And so when the bridal party started coming in for one time in my life in 40 years of ministry, somehow, some way, I forgot to have them stand. And I remember it so perfectly. The mother was looking at them. Here comes her daughter, and nobody said it. She turned around, and she looked at me. She turned around, and she looked back. She turned around and looked at me again, and she just looked at me like that. And I went. <laughs> it was too late. I'd made a mistake. 
I couldn't fix it without calling attention to it. So I just didn't. <laughs> oh, I've laughed about that. I found such joy in that moment. It was not joy she felt. I understand that. But you know, the ceremony was not about the ceremony. The ceremony about was, was what was happening. Not in its physical perfection. Because you know, something happens at almost every wedding. Like you get the bride on the wrong side of the groom. You know, you get that where the, just the father can't get in the right spot. Yeah, it all happens in most weddings. Sometimes they just kind of get in the switch and sometimes it's just not working. Salvation is a process. And I hope for everyone to realize that because sometimes we hang around with people that aren't where we are and we forget that we once were where they were. Salvation is also about an inheritance. Part of that inheritance is that a sense of assurance that God is always with us, just like Paul wrote to the Romans, never separated from us. Just like Jesus promised in Matthew when he said, I'm with you always. And we hope for that memory to be locked in our heads, and we are confident of it. We are confident of what Paul said to the Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that whatever the circumstance is that comes our way, that hope is grounded and is steadfast. It cannot be shaken. It is not grounded in people. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. Sometimes I put a lot of faith and trust in people without giving them room to be people who made mistakes. I only reserve that kind of hope for God now. Because God is perfect. God always delivers. God never forgets and leaves me sitting on the front porch steps. God never forgets where I am or what I'm doing. That assurance that is our confidence causes us to look at the world, though the world may be seeming to go crazy around us, and relax and to smile because we know who has the future, including our future in his hands. That's confidence, and it's something we as followers of Christ need to hold on to and to share with others so that they are aware of the confidence that undergirds our very faith itself. And you say, well, how do we find that confidence? How do we find that assurance that God loves us? Read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Pray. 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 And read the scriptures. Read the scriptures and study them and meditate on them. And ask yourself, who else would I trust? except Christ. My identity is Christ. I bear his name when I call myself Christian. I'm not always perfect, and I never will be on this earth, I dare say. And yet, I know that even in my imperfections, God loves me, God forgives me, and God has a relationship with me, and I have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can say a lot of things about me. You can convince me of many things. But you can't take that away from me because that is without equal to everything else that I believe. It is what I depend upon. It is my hope for everyone. 
And it is my firm conviction that it is possible for everyone. No one is so far away from the Father that they can't come home. Come to the altar is an invitation for everyone. We sang it over and over again. And for everyone who comes to the altar, the past falls away, the present is redeemed, and the future is enhanced in their very lives. All that it takes is coming to Christ, just as we are. We'll never have it all right. Some people, they, they've got a checklist. But yes, you can join the church if you've done these ten things. <laughs> I can't make that checklist because if that checklist was really complete, it would take a book. Coming to Christ and making Christ not only Savior but Lord of your life is a lifetime experience. You'll never get it all right, but you will yearn to get it all right. It will be your hope that you are being fulfilled by your presence with Christ more and more, day by day, moment by moment. <clears throat> and every time we witness that, don't we get great joy in it? You know, there are people that we follow and we think about, and, and every one of us have people that touch us in ways that others don't touch us as much as. It's just the nature of the way things go. For me, usually that person that's really touching me is someone who's not just doing the normal things that I appreciate day by day, as many of you do, but it's those people who do extraordinary things, who show extraordinary hope and confidence in God. And sometimes I admit it's very instructive for me. It causes me to think about how earthly I am. And one of those persons for me is Miss Jackson, Liz Jackson. When I read her newsletter about the work she's doing in the Philippines now with the children in the streets, when I read about how she goes and she asks people's permission to feed the hungry children around them in the neighborhood, and next thing you know, the person that she's asking permission to do it is joining with her in doing it. When I watch how God takes her into places that aren't safe for anyone to go, much less for a young woman, and she goes with a confidence that she doesn't go anywhere alone because she believes that nothing can separate her from her Lord. When I watch the fire in her eyes and the sheer joy of those people that she's loving, even the ones who aren't loving her, I am humbled and I am encouraged. And I find hope in my own life that this young woman is such a model of following her Lord. What a gift. What a grace to share for us. And you know, exactly what Liz is doing in the Philippines as a missionary is a calling. But you know what? It's also the calling for every one of us in every neighborhood we live in. To take that same grace to the people who are starving and don't know it, to the people who are homeless and don't know it, to the people who are unappreciative of the faith and don't know the name Jesus, to the people who've never had that warm, hopeful feeling that somebody really cares about them possibly even more than they care about themselves. That's the kind of hope that I hope for from Christians. That's the kind of response that I try to give in life. I'm not always successful, but I do my best as many times as I can to be the person that people need for me to be in order to show them Jesus. Because in the end, my hope is a simple one. I hope that everyone lives forever with Jesus.
but I want it to begin right now on this earth. I want them to believe right now and enjoy that through our whole earthly experience of just walking with the Savior and knowing that they are loved. Not because of what they do, not because of who they are, not because of something they might do for me in the future or for someone else, but for them to know that they are simply loved despite what they may do or not do in their life, that they are still loved with a love that will not be quenched and will not be deterred, regardless of how many years it takes, to that patient, hopeful love, loving with the confidence that God in Christ is offering himself to them. The timing simply is waiting for them. If you're here today and you've been waiting for that timing, perhaps today is that moment for you to say yes to Christ, to say yes to the church of Jesus Christ. If so, I invite you to come forward, and I want to pray as you stand.